right. Hi, uh, welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Nick, for sharing that story. It's uh, just a powerful story already and very cool to see how his story lines up almost perfectly with the story uh, that we're reading today in our passage in John. So we right now as a church, we're in a sermon series in the book of John. It's, it's a book about Jesus's life. It's written by uh, the disciple John, who was with Jesus for his ministry, his teachings, his uh, miracles, his death and resurrection and ascension, and is writing about that. So we've uh, gone through four chapters now. We're going to wrap up the fourth chapter here today, and our passage is uh, about a father who has a son that is on the brink of death. And uh, if you want to follow along, the, the passage will be up here on the screen as well. It's also on the inside of your worship folders and that handout. But we're entitling this sermon, Please Save My Son. All right, starting in the very first verse, verse 46. So he's speaking about Jesus. Uh, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And so uh, whether <clears throat> you've been here or not the past few weeks, we'll kind of just highlight and summarize for you. So uh, Jesus, his very first miracle was up here in Cana, where he turned water into wine at a wedding, if you remember that. Then he goes down to Jerusalem. This is where he interacted uh, with uh, Nicodemus in John 3. And then after that, he went uh, through Samaria. And so kind of zoom up here. He went through Samaria. So the past few weeks, we've been talking about Jesus and his interaction with a Samaritan woman. And then now today, he is going back up to Cana. So our John, the author, tells us, Jesus, he's back in the same city that he was in previously. He did that miracle, remember, where he turned water into wine. And as Jesus is back up here, word is spread, the miracle worker, the, the rabbi, the people that, uh, this guy that's trending right now, he's getting very popular. He is back up here in Galilee, in the city of Canaan. And there's an official that's over here in Capernaum. So another city in the region of Galilee that's about 20 miles away. And this official, he has a son who is ill. Verse 46 says, so we have this guy. He's probably a royal official. Other uh, translations call him a royal official or a noble, nobleman. Uh, he's probably working for the king at the time, King Herod. And he, like everyone in the region, has heard about Jesus. Actually, even when Jesus does that first miracle, it says he does go to Capernaum. So um, Jesus' fame has spread all throughout that region. And this nobleman, this official, has a son who is dying, a son who is at the point of death. And he's a father who has nowhere else to turn, a father who has no hope, a father who has a child who is about to die, and he will do anything to save him. Now, this father, we don't know, is he a Jewish uh, official or is he a Gentile official? And uh, we don't really know for sure. The, the passage doesn't tell us. I looked at a number of commentaries this week, and uh, they kind of split on whether or not he was Jewish or Gentile. But regardless, uh, we learned kind of two really important things. So one is, is uh, especially highlighted if he's a Jewish uh, man. Another one that's especially highlighted if he's a Gentile. But regardless, both of these are happening so what we're noticing here, uh, and what John's trying to help us see in just the way that he has uh, 
has been telling the story is that Jesus' gospel is now expanding. It's spreading. Two different ways we, we see in our passage here today. One, it's spreading geographically. And so if you've been around uh, for John, you've seen this. Um, I'll kind of just summarize right here. So Jesus first spoke to Nicodemus. Then after that, John records him speaking to a Samaritan woman. And then uh, if this guy's, a, this, this guy's an official, whether he's Jewish or not, he is the next character that Jesus has an interaction with. And what uh, commentators pick up on this, they say, this just narratively is showing that Jesus' gospel is not just stuck in Jerusalem. It's not just around the temple, the center of the Jewish faith, but that it's now expanding. It's now spreading geographically. And so it, it uh, alludes to, or like as, as we're reading this uh, passage, you know, uh, 2,000 years later, it helps us, or many of us are probably picking up on this, what Jesus, one of his last things he said to his followers after his death and resurrection, before his ascension, he told his disciples, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, it's going to fill you, and I'm going to send my disciples all over the place, okay? And you're going to be my witnesses, and he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so John's picking up in this in telling this story that Jesus, his gospel will be spread here in Jerusalem and in all of Judea with his interaction with Nicodemus, then Samaria, which is a Samaritan woman, and now we're seeing it go to the ends of the earth, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Samaria, not to the far reaches of um, Israel here. Or, um, and I would say and or, some, some commentators disagree on, is he Jewish or is he Gentile? And one focuses on the other. But I also think what you see here, if he's a Gentile, you see Jesus' gospel his good news, his message of his kingdom breaking free and, uh, you know, um, beginning to talk about what is going to happen with his death and resurrection. We also see that the gospel is spreading to all different types of people. And so with uh, these three characters, Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, today's Gentile official, and then the next passage next week, he's going to interact with a man who is crippled. We also see that Jesus' gospel is not just for the religious elite, but it's for all different kinds of people. So with Nicodemus, we see the gospel going to high-standing Jewish men. And Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman and uh, letting her know that he is the Messiah. We see that Jesus is interacting with not high-standing, but low-standing people. Not Jewish men, but Gentile women. And then today's passage, if this guy is a Gentile, we see Jesus also interacting with high-standing, respected Gentile men. And then next week's passage, we'll see him interacting with a low or looked down upon or disrespected person who is Jewish. So the point here and just uh, the details of what's going on is that Jesus' gospel is expanding. It's growing. It's not just for maybe the people we'd think it would be for. It's not just for the Nicodemus types the people who have studied the Bible their whole lives and are, are working at the temple and who are close to the center of God's presence at that time in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, but his gospel is spreading. And what's, what's beautiful and powerful about this for us, reading this 2,000 years later, is that what Jesus said would happen, what we see described here, his gospel spreading geographically and his, and his gospel also spreading through all different kinds of people, uh, what's beautiful about us getting to, to read this 2,000 years later is that this actually happened. This was not just a, a guy hoping it'll happen or not just the Bible wishing 
that it would. But history and reality data shows us this as well. So here's a map, current map of uh, the world right now. Uh, it's a little bit hard to see, but each color is a different uh, world religion. And so what you see here right now is that Christianity is all across the globe. Christianity is in every single continent, minus Antarctica. I don't know, maybe there's Christian scientists uh, working in Antarctica as well. But Christianity is in all continents. It has spread to the ends of the earth. And it's also spread to all types of people. What's kind of cool about this map, and uh, you know, anthropologists and, and theologians pick up on this, they say what's unique about Christianity, especially compared to all world religions, is that it's not connected to a geographical area, nor is it connected to one or two people groups, which all the other world religions are. Islam is mostly in the Middle East and Northern Africa. Hinduism is mostly in uh, India. Buddhism is mostly in parts of Asia, whereas Christianity is in every single continent. And it does not matter what tribe you come from, what language you speak, how high or low you are on the social ladder. It doesn't matter your gender or your education, but there are uh, people who believe the gospel in every single people group, almost uh, with, with very few exceptions. So here at the beginning of John, or of our passage here today in John 4, we're seeing uh, narratively in the story the gospel spread. The gospel spread to all different types of people and to spread all over geographically. All right, let's continue our story. Verse 47 says, When this man, this, this official, this father, heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So this official, he's a royal official. He's, he's self-sufficient. He's wealthy. He's powerful. He's the guy that when he says something, it gets done. He has influence. He has authority. Yet, this guy finds himself at the very end of his rope. His power, his money, his position, his influence are all failing him right now to give him the one thing that he wants in this world more than anything, his son to be healed. Nothing about his wealth or his power are able to meet this greatest need. And when he comes to the end of his rope, when he realizes there's nothing he can do, his money, his power, cannot get a cure for his son. When he realizes his complete powerlessness, that's when he comes to Jesus. Many of us have, have been in a similar situation in our lives, who have had a child in danger. Whether you've had a tough, scary pregnancy, whether your child has been hospitalized, maybe you've gone through a miscarriage, maybe you have a child who has special needs, or a child who's been hospitalized or spent time in the ICU, we can feel the father's desperation, right? A parent who has no other uh, options but has a fatally ill child will do anything. And we see this in this official's story. He's desperate. He says, I'll do anything. I'll humble myself. I'll give up my pride. I'll give up all my money. I'll give up my power, my reputation, my honor. I'll do anything to save my child. As many of you know, this kind of mirrors my and my wife's story this past year. 
about a year ago, our, our son was born, Jack was born, uh, about four months before his due date. Um, and if you don't know a lot about pregnancy, four months is quite early. It's uh, too early. Don't, we don't recommend it. Um, it's like so early that many hospitals, most hospitals won't even uh, try to deliver and save the baby. And so Jack is what they call a, a micropremie who was born at 23 uh, weeks old. And so here's a picture of him when he was born. He was so tiny and young that his skin was uh, transparent. His eyelids were still fused shut because he just was not old enough where his eyelids start to open. His hands were so tiny that you can kind of see in this picture, when, when he grabbed my finger, his uh, four fingers could fit on my one finger now. That's how tiny his little hands were. His toes were the size of a grain of rice. We could take our, my, my wedding ring and I could put it not just over his foot, but it could uh, go all the way up his leg. So if you think of, we, we could hold him in our hands, like his whole body just fit right here with kind of like two little legs that stuck out that were, you know, as small as my fingers. And so this passage, I mean, this, this hits really close to home for my family. We had the same helpless powerless feelings that this father did here in our passage. And we had the same prayer. We, say, we prayed this exact same prayer over our son uh, constantly for months and months and months. Jesus, please, please save our baby. Please save our boy. And many times in Jack's journey, whether it's brain bleeds or immediate, uh, emergency surgeries or infections, uh, Jack like the official son, was literally at the point of death. And while we had world-class medical care and, and equipment and doctors and nurses in one of the greatest hospitals for micropremies in the nation, we knew many times throughout Jack's young life that, that the next hour or even the next minute might be his very last. And so like the father, we too went to Jesus, poured out our hearts, and pleaded for a miracle. And many of you were part of that. You prayed with us for months and months for Jesus to, to heal and to save Jack. And you joined with us in, in weeping and mourning. You showed us great kindness and compassion. We felt Jesus close to us through Jesus' body, the church, mirroring what you know, Nick shared in his story. And we pled, just like this father, uh, asking for a miracle, asking for God to heal our son. By God's grace, I mean, this is Jack out of the hospital. Uh, he's almost 10 months old now, which is like six months past his due date. So he's, he's in many ways like a six-month-old baby. And in our story here, we, we, the official is in the same stage. He has no hope. His son is at the edge of death, but he hears about this Jesus, this Jesus that did a miracle just down the road a few weeks or a few months ago, and he thinks, maybe he can help. I didn't have any hope before this, but Jesus is coming. Maybe he can help. So this official travels 20 miles from Capernaum to Canaan, which is uphill through the mountains to beg for a miracle, his last hope. And after a long journey, he pleads with Jesus, Jesus, please, I know you're important. Please come back with me to my home, back with me to my town, and heal my son. And yet Jesus responds in this way, which 
as we read, maybe you thought was kind of strange. Jesus said to the Father, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And here, actually, it's, it's hard to get in the English translation because we don't have, you know, the, the, the southern translation of the Bible here, but it should say y'all here. The you is plural. So Jesus is saying, not just to this Father, but to everyone who's listening, and if, if he's a Gentile, he's speaking to Gentiles as well. Um, but if he's Jewish, he's just speaking to people, humanity, everyone who's listening. Unless you, plural, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. We've actually seen this in John, if, if you've been around for this series, a number of times as well. Jesus performing signs and miracles and people asking him, do more. Do more of these so that we can believe. We're going to see this all throughout John. It's going to happen continually. But in the book of John, he makes it clear that signs and miracles, while not ultimate, are still a part of God's plan. So in God sending his son, Jesus, into the world as Savior, part of the plan is that Jesus is going to do supernatural, divine miracles and signs and wonders for, for many different reasons that will bring about people's faith especially kind of in this unique time period where Jesus is completely turning uh, people's ideas of what the Christ, what the Messiah was going to be. This rescuing king that was promised to, to come and usher in God's kingdom and to defeat God's enemies. Jesus is showing up and he's doing miracles that are proving that he is from God, that he is who he said he is, that he is the Messiah, but not the Messiah that they thought he would be, but he is the Messiah. We actually see this later on in John. John writes about miracles. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So Jesus did countless other ones. I didn't get a chance to write them all down. But the ones I did write down, these signs and wonders that are written down, are written so that you may believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's telling, John is telling us here, the point of miracles is so that you would believe, that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the divine sent king, rescuer, Christ that is coming into the world, that Jesus is the son of God, that he's fully God and fully man, and that by believing in Jesus as the Messiah and as the son of God, you may have life in his name. Physical life, Life right now, spiritual life, as well as eternal life. So actually, Jesus' statement here, it's, it's not a condemnation as if this father's wrong for wanting his son to be healed, or as if it's shameful that he'd come bother Jesus with this request. But rather, it's a legitimate request. It's understandable. It's what a good father would do, right? What a good father should do. Coming to Jesus and pleading with him for his son's life. Yeah, we're going to see today, and we're also going to see all throughout John, that seeing miracles, seeing signs and wonders, is not ultimate. It's not ultimate. It's not the greatest thing. There's actually a sign, there's actually a miracle that's even greater than all these other ones, and that is the sign of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. We don't have time to unpack this. This was a whole sermon a few weeks ago. So if you're interested in this, go back and listen to the sermon where uh, people are asking Jesus to do signs and wonders and he responds 
to them there. But apart from Jesus' death and resurrection, there's no other sign, no other miracle, no other wonder that one person needs in order to be saved, in order for faith. In fact, we're going to see this again and again and again for the next year as we spend time in John. Thousands of people see Jesus do supernatural miracles and don't believe. Thousands eat the food that Jesus miraculously uh, multiplied. When he heals and touches people that have been lame or crippled or leprous for their entire lives, people see this and they still don't believe. And we're going to see people who don't see any signs, but just know that the tomb is empty, that Jesus died, now he is alive, and they put their faith in that, and they believe. In fact, after Jesus' resurrection, he talks with one of his disciples, a disciple who says, I want to believe, but I just can't. Until I touch the, the, the risen Jesus, I will not believe. And Jesus speaks to this disciple Thomas and says, hey, I'm here. I'm here to answer your questions and give you faith. Yet blessed are those who don't even see a miraculous sign except for the cross and the resurrection and the empty tomb and believe. And actually, as we continue to read the Bible, we're told again and again that, that faith doesn't come from you getting a prayer answered or you seeing something supernatural or a sign or wonder being in your life. But faith actually comes from hearing the gospel. Especially see that in, in Romans 10, 17. Belief isn't predicated on seeing a miracle, on seeing wonders. Now we pray for it. It's a good thing to ask God for. We know he can do it and he loves us deeply, but we don't make it ultimate. So Jesus responds by saying, not a rebuke, but just saying, unless you see crowd signs and wonders, you're not going to have faith. Like John picks up on miracles, are written down so that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and have life through that. So Jesus responds to the official in this way, and the official kind of at his end of his rope, he doesn't really seem, or really seem to care about Jesus' kind of theological statement here. He just responds again, and he says, Sir, please come down before my child dies. Now what's great here and helpful to notice is look at patient Jesus is with this man. Look how compassionate and gentle he is. He asked Jesus again, Jesus, come down, come down from the mountains, down to Capernaum, into my home, and save my child before he dies. But notice how Jesus responds to him with gentleness and patience. One of the church fathers, Cyril from Alexandria, with his, which is in Africa, he writes about this. He says, the nobleman believed that Jesus needed to come to his son to heal him. But Christ does not reject our lack of apprehension. Rather, as God, he helps even the stumbling. So this guy had a little mustard seed of faith. This guy did not understand everything theologically. This guy spoke to Jesus and still didn't get it. Yet Jesus is kind and patient and loving. And he's with that, he's with He's like that with you as well. Even as Nick shared in his story, in his doubts, in his faith, not being that great, in not having great theological answers, God was gentle with him and patient and close. And in his weakness was strong. The father had a great desire here. Death and sickness, disease, 
are the enemy. They're not part of God's original plan, but rather they're the effects of the fall. They're the effects of humanity's rebellion against God. Disease and death and pain and suffering came into the world because of humanity's sin. So a desire that those would end, a desire that a sick kid would be healed, the desire that death would be stopped is a good and great desire. And all of us can sympathize with this father. Many of us can even empathize because we've gone through something similar. The, the desperation of having a loved one suffering or even at the point of death. And in this passage, we see two uh, things at the exact same time. We see a good father who has deep love for his child. He'll do anything. He'll literally cross mountains in order to save his son from death. And at the same time, we see Jesus, who's compassionate and patient. He's not cold. He's not too cool, too important. He's not distant. He's not apathetic to the human experience or even to suffering or death. In fact, he entered into it. He added humanity to his divinity and entered into our dark world, the world where death always wins. And he experienced it. And he lived it. And he brought whispers of the world that he was about to bring. As he entered our world, he, he spoke of a kingdom, a kingdom that would expand and grow, that would defeat all these great enemies that we have of, of sickness and death and sin. And he shows in his life that he doesn't just care about the righteous. He doesn't just care about the powerful, but he cares about a, a, a child who's not named, a child who has little importance and who's in a far-off corner of Galilee. He cares about this little boy, his physical body, his sickness, his well-being, his life, right there and right now. And so as we are reading this, a great question to ask is, what do we pray? How do we pray when we're suffering? How do we pray when, when illness or disease or even death are around ourselves or our loved ones? Do we, like the royal official, do we come to Jesus knowing he can heal and that he loves us to the uttermost, which is great? Do we, do we pray like the official, putting all of his eggs in the basket of a physical healing, which is not as great, right, where he's seeing things unclearly here? The Father's prayer, heal my son, is a great prayer. Pray that prayer. Pray that prayer knowing that Jesus loves your loved one or you as you're going through your suffering. Trust that Jesus can heal and Jesus does heal and that Jesus does love. All that's true. And there's something even greater than physical healing. There's something even greater than temporal disease destroy, destroying. There's something even greater than that, and it's salvation from the disease of sin, salvation from the disease of death. My wife and I, for, for months and months, we literally stood over our son's incubator and pleaded with God. We begged him to have mercy on our son. We cried out to our Savior, Jesus, please heal our son. Save our son. That was a constant prayer on our lips and in our hearts for months and months. And by God's grace, he gave us other prayers. He gave us additional faith. You, you guys prayed prayers 
with us and, and over our son that allowed us to pray more than just save our son as if our only hope was in Jack surviving another day or getting out of the NICU. We also prayed, God, thank you for his life, even if it gets cut short. God, help us to remember that you love him even more than we do. We're literally sick in our stomachs because we love this child so much, but you love him even more. You want what's best for him even more than we do. We prayed, God, help us see each moment with him as a gift. We know that no one is promised tomorrow. We prayed, help us to trust you because our faith is weak. And if all we see is death and destruction and suffering, it's hard to trust you in all this. So give us more faith, strengthen our faith. And we prayed that God would help us to suffer well. That we would, in our suffering, in our, in our seasons of wanting to give up, we would remember that our Savior suffered deeply. And in that, he still honored God and, and trusted him through all of his pain and agony. And if God can use that for goodness, he can use our son's suffering as well. And we prayed, God, save our son from his sins. The greatest thing that Jack needs is, is not just his lungs to heal and develop, not just for his insides to work again, not just to have cords and tubes and, and sensors removed from his body, but his greatest need is for him to be reconciled with you, to have his sins forgiven. His greatest need is for spiritual life and for eternal life. And we prayed for that. Physical healing is great. Pray for it. Jesus desires it. He, he, he responds to it many times. But there's something even greater than that, and that is spiritual and eternal healing. All right, back to our story. So after the official asked Jesus a second time, Jesus, please come down with me to my home. My son is dying. Jesus responds. And in verse 50, you might, be, you might have thought this was kind of a strange response, but Jesus says to him, he doesn't answer the guy's question. He doesn't do what the father asks, but he says, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke, and he went on his way. So John picks up at the beginning, said, this man has faith. He believes in Jesus, and he comes to him, and he pleads with him, save my son who is about to die. And Jesus responds by saying, essentially, no, I'm not going to come down to Capernaum. I'm not going to go to your home yet. Go. Leave. Go back home. Your son will live. And the man has faith. He doesn't argue. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't plead with Jesus. No, but you must come. No, you must touch him. No, you must be in the room with him. But he believes Jesus. He trusts Jesus at his word. And as he was going down, the father's servants met him and told him that his son was alive. His son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And the servant said to the father, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. The father asks, when? When did this impossible miracle happen? When was my son healed? And it was on the seventh hour, the exact same hour that Jesus spoke and reality obeyed. It was Jesus. It was no coincidence that the medicine finally worked at the seventh hour 
or that his body finally got enough strength to beat this terminal disease. But it's when Jesus spoke 20 miles away that this boy was healed. This rabbi, this, this traveling preacher, this guy from Galilee healed someone. But he healed someone in a way that had never happened before. If this guy was a, a Jewish man, he knew the Old Testament. He knew God had prophets. God had people uh, that he used to do miraculous miracles. So through this miracle, we're realizing, hey, this guy must be from God. But unlike the Old Testament, unlike, unlike all the, the prophets and the priests and other miraculous things God did, something new is happening. This guy didn't just touch a sick child, and they came back to life or were healed. He wasn't even in the same room speaking over a sick child. But he spoke, and he was healed. Unlike the Old Testament prophets, Jesus didn't touch, but rather by his word, from a great distance, this child was healed. Jesus healed without even being in the same zip code as this dying boy. So who is this man? Who is this man? No one has ever done anything like this before. Not even the great prophets of old. He's not just from God, but he must be God himself. He actually is who he said he is. Alison Mitchell, who poetically writes about this passage, she says, Jesus didn't need to go and see the boy. Jesus simply spoke. And just like that, the boy was better. Wow. Only Jesus could do that. And you know why? Because Jesus is God's son. And this miracle, this unique type of raising the almost dead was not lost on this official or on his family. The fruit of this, the response of, of this boy being saved from death was that he himself believed and his entire household believed. His extended family, everyone who lived in his home, his servants all believed. Who else could speak from 20 miles away and heal a dying boy? And again, we see in John, the word goes forth and brings about healing, brings about salvation, it brings about life and faith. This father's faith grew. It moved from, at the beginning of our story, faith that Jesus was powerful enough to heal, faith that he was a miracle worker, that he was from God, faith from that to, wow, he really is the Messiah. He really is God in flesh. He is the Son of God. And that he brings not just physical healing, but eternal and true and spiritual healing. Through Jesus' sign, through his healing, salvation moved from one man into the entire household. I was talking with a, a woman from Hiawatha about this passage, and she had some really great insight. And I asked to quote her, and she said, I can, but I couldn't use her name, so it's anonymous. But uh, a, a woman here from Hiawatha wrote, uh, about this, and I thought it was great. She said, The greatest miracle of this passage is not the healing of the Son, but rather Jesus bringing salvation to a man and his entire household. Even though this man had very little theological knowledge and only a small amount of faith, Jesus used it to bring about salvation to all those in his life. 
Jesus' work, Jesus' salvation not only changes us, but it empowers us. It, it, it makes us different. We can't help but share who he is and what he's done. And salvation moves from just a boy not dying to a father and a son believing that the Son of God has come into this world to bring eternal healing, a healing infinitely greater than what they've experienced. And they share it with everyone, everyone who will listen, and everyone believes his family and his household. Now here's the good news for our story for us today. Already a miraculous story. Already something that gives us encouragement. Yet if all we do is just think, well, this story is, you know, I'm the father in this story. And of course, there's, there's, there's some truth to that as well. Some of us are parents and some of us will intercede on the behalf of, of sick. But if this story is only you're the father, we're the father in this story, we're going to be crippled with this idea that we have to impress Jesus. We have to climb literal mountains. We have to travel long distances. We have to show God our faith in order to persuade him or turn our heads. Or if this story is only about us being like the father, if it's just about a moral example, then we're going to think, especially if we're parents, that our kids' health, and even more so our kids' salvation, is based on us. If we think this is just immoral, we're going to think, oh no, I, I have to have unbelievable faith like this guy in this story, or else my kids won't survive the sickness that they're going through, or the hospital stay, or their birth, or that their salvation is even dependent on everything I do in my own faith. So if we only think that we're the father in the story, that's where we'll naturally be led and, and crushed. But rather, this story is much more about us not really being the father, but each one of us being more like the sick and dying son. We're much more like this diseased child who's on the brink of death. In the Bible, actually, we're described as, apart from saving faith in Jesus, we're not just spiritually sick, but we're spiritually dead. Spiritually dead without hope. Yet the good news of our story today, just like this father here, we too have a father that will do anything to save you. Anything to save you. A heavenly father that will not just hope to save our children, his children, but will save his children. God is our heavenly father, and he is a father who will do anything to rescue his children, to heal his sons and daughters. And unlike the father in this story, our heavenly father is not just hoping he can. He's not just doing his last-ditch effort because nothing else is working. But our Heavenly Father promises to do it and has the divine power to accomplish it. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just a hope that we kind of hope happens. Unlike the Father in this story who secures an earthly temporal healing, our Heavenly Father secures a spiritual healing. A spiritual healing that will last not just temporally, but for eternity. And even will one day turn in to physical as well. As he remakes and recreates the new heavens and earth and resurrects these actual physical bodies on his new heaven and a new earth where we'll live in a sinless, diseaseless, 
suffering less, death less, physical world alongside our beloved Father forever. So far today, we've, we've been talking about how praying for physical healing is a good thing. It's good. Do it. Pray for physical healing for those you love. It's a demonstration that you trust God. It's a demonstration of your love for the sick and for the suffering. We've seen that Jesus deeply loves us and has unthinkable compassion for everyone, including the sick, the diseased, the suffering, and those near death. That is all true. And physical healing is not promised to us. As if, if you just have enough faith, you will be healed. Or if you are a child of the king, you will not be touched ever by any physical pain or disease or death. That's not promised to us. But even greater than that, the greater type of healing is promised to you and me through faith in Jesus. Although hard for us to receive sometimes, especially when we're in the midst of it, there's something even greater than spiritual, or sorry, even greater than physical healing, and that's spiritual and eternal. And that is offered to you, no strings attached, through faith in Jesus that is promised to you and me. Jesus picks up on this as he describes what his mission is into this world, where he connects healthy and sick and sinner and righteous. In Mark 2, Jesus says, those who are well, those who aren't sick, don't have a need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, my mission is to come into this world and to save those, heal those who know that they're sick. Those who know that they are spiritually sick. Those who know that they are sinners. People who think that they're righteous, they don't have any need for me. And we'll, we'll see this play out through Jesus' entire story. Those who think that they're good with God despise Jesus. Those who are physically sick and especially those who know that they're spiritually sick, spiritually dead, those are the people that flock to Jesus. And he saves them again and again and again. So in John, signs, miracles, wonders are, are, are given to us to point to belief. Right? We read that in John 20. And belief in Jesus leads to us being cured from spiritual disease, us being uh, under the weight of, of, of spiritual death. Salvation came to this boy in our passage today physically, but even more so to the official, to the son, and to his entire family. Salvation came. And it came through suffering. So in our story today, healing, an eternal healing, Salvation from a disease and salvation from, from hell and sin and death came through suffering. The story wouldn't have happened if this boy wasn't suffering, if this boy wasn't about to die. And it is through suffering that salvation came. And later on in the story, we're going to see that again, salvation is going to be bought and won and purchased through another person's suffering, another son's suffering. Salvation comes through suffering. It comes through work. It comes through blood. It comes through tears. It comes through death. Salvation comes through suffering, but not your own suffering. 
You cannot suffer enough. You cannot work hard enough. You cannot uh, beat yourself up enough in order to earn salvation. But rather, salvation comes through another person's suffering. First Peter 2 speaks about Jesus, the same Jesus in our passage would, would just a few years later suffer for us. Another son suffering so that the salvation of many could come. Jesus himself, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's by his wounds you have been healed. That is our great hope today. Not that you would suffer enough that God would uh, turn his head towards you. Not that you would climb a mountain or work really hard or give up all your wealth and your power so that Jesus, Jesus would be impressed enough to offer you salvation or healing. But this is the good news here that's whispered about in John 4 and, and fully comes through Jesus' death and resurrection, that someone else's suffering would bring about your healing. Sometimes through your physical healing, as he heals from disease and sickness and pain and suffering, but promised through ultimate healing, through, through spiritual healing and eternal healing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news, that you are a loving Father that would not let any obstacle keep us from you. We were not just lying on a bed close to death, full of disease, without hope. But we were dead. We were spiritually dead. We were without hope. Yet you are a good father that did not let anything keep you from him. That you sent your son into the world to die the death that we deserved. That through your suffering that you would bear our sins and life again would come through the suffering of a son. Salvation would come through the suffering of someone else. So God, help us to believe that. Help us to rejoice in that. To help us to pray, to know that you deeply love us. You love these lives, these bodies, these emotions and, and feelings, and you want our health, that you are a good Savior, you're a good God, you're a good creator. Yet, at times, you, you won't answer the prayer for physical healing, but you always offer or always answer the prayer of spiritual healing, of eternal life. So even if this life is, is cut short, even if it's just a blip, help us to remember that you offer, through faith, salvation that will last for eternity with you in physical, recreated, restored bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. God, you came to fully defeat all this, this evil uh, in this world, this, this evil, this death, this disease, this suffering that we let in through our rebellion against you. So thank you, God, the story doesn't end in Genesis 3, but that it ends, uh, the beginning of the end starts right here, as we saw in your death and resurrection, but now we know what the future holds for those of us who trust in you. So give us faith. Give people in this room faith for the very first time. Help them to see your great love for them, and for those who already do believe, help us to persevere, clinging to this, as we suffer and as we uh, rejoice um, in the gospel, we pray.